0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to our Wednesday Night Live Bible Study. We're so glad that you have decided to join us today. As you can see, I have Reverend Moss on the line with me tonight. And so without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to him. I'll monitor the chat channels, and I'll be back in about half an hour. Brother Moss, go ahead and take it away.
1: All right. Thank you, and welcome to the Newark UPC Digital Campus. We're glad to have you join us tonight. And uh, we are this week studying and looking into the fact that Jesus is the King of Kings. And we've already examined the truth that he is the King. We've talked about the splendor, the awesomeness of this King, and then the human reactions that have been manifested toward this King. In the representative republic of, that's known as the United States of America, we're not familiar with the historical protocols of an audience with the royalty. That's what we're gonna talk about tonight is preparing to meet the king. Our government was specifically set up without royalty or titles of nobility. Even those that are familiar with the traditions of royalty can bring ire on themselves by the slightest misstep. In July of 2017, at a function in London, commemorating the 150th anniversary of Canada, David Johnston, who is the governor general of Canada, lightly touched the queen on the elbow as she descended, a, a flight of stairs. In the news article that showed up after this uh, incident, it was reported that quote, Canada's governor general has been forced to defend his actions after a slippy carpet led to a breach of royal etiquette with the queen. David Johnston raised eyebrows on Wednesday as he was seen to be lightly touching her majesty's elbow as she descended some steps at an event in London. Uh, This kind of thing is uh, covered by DeBrett's, which is a professional coaching company and it's also a publisher and authority on etiquette and behavior. It was founded in 1769, so they've had a little practice with this and uh, they started out with the publication of the first edition of the new peerage. The company takes its name from its founder, John DeBrett. And David Miller, who at this time was the uh, director of DeBrett, said, says that royal etiquette is a helpful set of instructions to show people how to behave in unfamiliar social settings. Uh, There are some do's and don'ts that they have laid out for meeting the queen. The do's include do curtsy or bow, uh, just the head, though you can shake her hand if she reaches out to you, or you can do a combination of the two things. Uh, You must use the right greeting on presentation to the queen. The correct address is your majesty. And subsequently, ma'am, uh, pronounced like jam. That's a direct quote here. Uh, be early. Guests should always arrive before a royal. Uh, take the queen's lead. Don't talk unless you're spoken to. Don't sit until she sits or begin eating until she does. Uh, when you are introduced to the queen, you will form semicircles. If you're presented to her majesty at a royal event, it's likely that you will be marshaled into position in a series of semicircles rather than straight lines. And uh, a special note here, guests should try to be empty handed. Then we have a list of don'ts. Don't touch her majesty. Uh, Mr. Johnston should have remembered that one. Only shake her hand if she offers it. Don't expect the queen to start the conversation with you first if you are sitting on her left during a meal. At the first course, as it is served, she will begin her conversation with whoever's on the right. And then when the second course comes, she will turn to whoever is on the left. Uh, Don't leave before the Queen does. If you absolutely must, you need to make special arrangements and get special permission to leave before the Queen. Don't ever turn your back on Her Majesty. This is considered rude. Uh, Don't take pictures while you are visiting her home. Uh, Unofficial photography is not permitted in royal palaces. Also don't ask uh, personal questions, uh, small talk, we're told is as far as you should go. And then the last uh, l- one on the list here from debrettes is, don't get carried away. You may be nervous, but alcohol is not your friend as DeBretz reminds guests in times of quote, overexcitement or nervousness. I probably won't be seeing the queen. <laughs> But it's good to know just in case. Uh, let's take a quick whole overview, historical overview about some protocol and etiquette, etiquette that uh, spread among people in ancient civilizations and how they've developed over the years where they've been. Uh, studies on international relations among ancient nations revealed that there were commonly accepted conventional practices that uh, were rules on relationship or principles and standards that were created as a result of uh, uh, envoys back and forth and uh, exchanging diplomatic messages. And they had to set up all these protocols. The the diplomatic relations that existed between Egypt and Babel, which started in about uh, 1450 BC included highlights on the application of the standard of protocol and etiquette that were related to both diplomatic immunities as well as receptions and ceremonies. In the ancient Greek city-states, there was a significant spread of protocol and etiquette standards, especially associated with the immunity of ambassadors and to the principles of managing their affairs. The same was evident later on during the Roman era in both the original Western arm and then later the Eastern arm of the Roman Empire that was centered in Constantinople. In Arabia, and please pardon me if I get any of these names uh, mispronounced. Uh, but during and following the the Umayyad Caliphate area, with, there were protocols for rulers and for ministers, and in the first Abbasid period, which was from 750 to about 1258, uh, Al-Jahiz wrote his famous book, I'm sure you've all read it, uh, called The Principles of Communication with Kings, which included information on how to receive, greet, sit, talk, and eat with kings. It also contained uh, the etiquettes of messengers and envoys and guidelines for the king's reception of the public during feasts." Now, let's leave that kind of stuff and, and uh, go through the scriptures to see how kings there were treated. As I began to look into this, I found that there were easily nine times that people either fell or bowed face down to the earth before the king. Our first instance of that was in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 8. When David, on the run, bowed face to the earth before King Saul. Then in Second Samuel nine and six, Mephibosheth bowed to David. In fact, most of these are uh, the recordings are from David's reign. Second Samuel fourteen four, uh, the woman of Tekoa bowed face down before him. Second Samuel fourteen twenty two, and also. Verse 33, Joab bowed face down before the king. In 2 Samuel 18:28, Ahimaaz, after his long run, fell to the earth, bowing before King David as he was bringing news of the battle with Absalom and his forces. Uh, 2 Samuel 24 and 20, Aruna or Ornan saw in the midst of a plague the king is at his entourage coming up to his threshing floor and when he saw the king he fell face down before him Uh, in the time when they were there was a conflict over who was going to succeed David both Nathan in first kings 123 and Bathsheba in first kings 131 came and bowed face down before the king also, we have in 1 Kings 1 and 16 that it doesn't say face down, didn't, not falling on her face before him. But that Bathsheba, another time in that same series of, of meetings, bowed before the king. Seven times in scripture, we hear the greeting, the salutation, O king, live forever. Those are found in 1 Kings 1 and 31, Nehemiah 2 and 3. And then uh, five times in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2 verse 4, 3 verses 8 and 9, 5 verse 10, uh, chapter 6 verse 6, and then in chapter 6 verse 21. Three times in the book of of Esther, and we're talking here of the the Medo-Persian empire, we are told that part of the protocol of coming in to meet the king, especially if you had not been specifically invited into his presence was that he must extend to you his golden scepter. And if that golden scepter was not extended, then the guards would drag you off and execute you for disturbing the king. And uh, it was a, a fearsome thing as we're going to see here in a little while to raise anything that would irritate the king because he was so powerful and and all he had to do was absolutely nothing. He just had to sit there and you were automatically uh, taken away and uh, disposed of. Those were found in Esther chapter four, verse 11, five, verse two, and in eight, verse four. Then there are times when people came before God and, and uh, uh, Genesis seven and 13, tells us that Abram fell on his face before God. Numbers 22 and 31, Balaam, when he saw the angel that had stopped the uh, the donkey from uh, going on and and slaying Balaam, uh, Balaam bowed down his head and fell flat on his face. I'm sure all of us have done that socially a time or two, fallen flat on our face. In Joshua chapter five and verse 14, uh, the captain of the host of the Lord met with him and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship. Second Chronicles 20 and 18, Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Uh, in Ezekiel one twenty-eight, as well as Ezekiel three twenty-three, and Ezekiel forty-four and four, the glory of the Lord filled the house or filled the place, and Ezekiel reported, "I fell upon my face." This is a, a sign of respect. This was a, a a sign of of obeisance and worship to the supreme majesty uh, of the King or of uh, our God. In Matthew 17 and 5, as they were upon the Mount of Transfiguration, the Lord spoke out of the cloud. And in verse 6, it says, And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And then I'll finish up on this little uh, excursion here about uh, falling before the king and bowing before the king with Revelation 1 and 17, John on the Isle of Patmos, said, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now let's switch gears and and go in a little different direction here because we've got a lot of things to cover as we're looking into this tonight. But I'd like to start in a place where it's always good, and that's at the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 1, in the beginning, God created heaven and the earth. The same mind created or designed and created both the heavens and the earth and if you'll notice in in many products in in our world you can see that there are design touches that when a particular company or a particular individual designs the different products that the products hold the mark of having come from that designer. The same kind of thing goes with the great artists, the great masters of old uh, as as they painted that you can tell that uh, this is a uh, uh, a Van Gogh, and this is a Rembrandt, just by the, the way it is produced, by the, by the mind that produced it, operated in a certain way, so there are similarities between heaven and earth, and in both testaments, our king drew parallels between these two realms, in the Old Testament, among lots of other things, it was pictured centrally, In the temple, in the tabernacle and temple that uh, they built in the wilderness and then in Jerusalem, and in the New Testament, many times specifically through parables. Let's take a look at some of those parables. I'll start there. And uh, just as an English lesson, uh, even though they were given probably in Aramaic, uh, is the fact that... For the English way of looking at it, the first few of these will be metaphors, and the latter part of them will be similes. In Matthew 13, 19, Jesus was talking about the uh, parable of the sower and the seed, and he said, this is he which received seed by the wayside. Verse 20, the same is he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. He's talking about the stony ground. Then the the thorny ground in Matthew 13, 22. The thorny ground is he that heareth the word and then the care of the world chokes it out. Verse number 23, the good ground is he that heareth the word and the care of this uh, and understandeth it. And then he switches to similes. Uh, Matthew uh, 13 and 24. And notice here that he is making a specific connection. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. That's also talked about in Mark 4 and 26. Matthew 13 and 31, he says again, the kingdom of heaven is is like to a grain of mustard seed. And this is repeated in Mark 4:31 and Luke 13:19. I know I'm giving you a lot of scripture, but this is a sermon, this is church. And in Matthew 13:33, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which Luke repeated in chapter 13 and verse number 20. Verse 44 of Matthew 13 says, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a treasure hid in a field. Do you see the the mind that has taken both of these things, the kingdom of heaven and and heavenly things are are like something that you can understand and recognize on earth. Uh, Chapter 13 and verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man Verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a net that's thrown out and brought back all sorts of fish. Chapter 13 and verse 52, every scribe which is instructed under the kingdom of heaven is likened to the man that is a householder, bringing forth old and new from his treasures. In Matthew 20 and 21, uh, Jesus again comes back and revisits this same thing with the kingdom is, of heaven is like unto a um, householder. And in this, he then goes into the parable of the man who goes out early in the morning and hires workers and then through the day until it's almost quitting time and he's still hiring workers. That's like the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew two and tw- uh, 22 and 2, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king that made a marriage for his son. And in all of these things, we see that there's a a comparison between the kingdom of heaven and earthly things because it's the same mind, it's the same God. And Jesus presented a concept of the kingdom in the similes and metaphors of these parables. And in the wilderness, he gave Moses a plan for a tangible uh, representation of the sacrifice of Calvary, the gospel message, and a way to have an audience with the King of Kings. We find in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5, he's talking about the uh, Aaronic priesthood, And uh, verse 5 takes up like this, it says, who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things. Here again, we see the tie between heaven and earth, that that this tabernacle that's sitting in the wilderness is picturing some things that are heavenly in their example. Uh, They serve as an example of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle for... See, he saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. We're going to talk some more about that here in just a little bit, but God was specifically instructing Moses, I've given you a plan, I've given you a blueprint. Now, I don't want you to say, well, that's good enough for government work, and so that's just that's the way we'll leave it. No, I want you to do it according to the plan. Don't add your own ideas. Don't take away from what I've told you. Just do it like I said. See, the Bible is full of word pictures and stories acting as blueprints for things to come. And uh, much effort is expended in trying to make sense of, of all these foreshadowings. Uh, Here's uh, just one book that's dedicated to explaining the significance of types and metaphors in the Bible. Uh, There are a lot of others that you could come up with, uh, I'm very sure. Uh, And it's necessary that we approach this avenue of study carefully. While it's a powerful reinforcement of of God's message, it, it can also be a minefield where you wanna make everything a type or everything a metaphor or stretch them out. Uh, it can also be a, a minefield of confirmation bias. When we overlay the Bible pictures with our own preconceived notions, it's gotta be this way. I uh, Remember, uh, they joked about one man who taught so much in the, in the book of Revelation came in one day and he was, he was looking very sad. They were telling him the joke about it. I don't know that he ever did, but that was the joke. And someone asked him why he was so sad. And he said, well, my sixth Antichrist just died. We can read our ideas in, uh, not only on end time events, but on a lot of other things that are in the scripture. And so... Uh, Just because this area has been misused doesn't mean it uh, must be avoided. Uh, Great understanding can be gleaned there by those who will be earnest with God and then honest with themselves. And the construction of the tabernacle and then the tabernacle was very important as a picture of God's plan and there are many books describing various aspects of the tabernacle. And uh, this is just one area of the priesthood and offerings. I have another book, uh, Typical Truth in the Tabernacle. And then uh, Clarence Larkin talked uh, some in his uh, Dispensational Truth book about things related to the tabernacle. And there are many uh, books that describe it and its services. But let's look at a few of the scriptures. That's a better place to go. Emphasizing the building of the temple tabernacle and then the temple according to God's pattern. And again, I'm gonna give you scripture. Uh, Exodus 25 and nine, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, according to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, And the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. In Exodus 25 and 40, and look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. And in Numbers 8 and 4, it is repeated again as they were working on the making the candlestick that they were to make it according to the pattern which the Lord had shown Moses. You know, after a while, after something's been repeated so many times, you think, Lord, I've got it. Uh, But so many times, it's not long until we don't have it. And it should have been repeated a few more times. So we'll go to some repetition. And in 1 Chronicles 28 and 11, David gave to Solomon, his son, the pattern of the porch and the houses and all for the building of the temple. And in verse 12, he repeated it again, and the pattern of all that he had by the Spirit. First Chronicles chapter 28 again, and verse 18. And uh, he talked about the gold that was after the pattern of the chariot of the cherubim. So isn't that a a tremendous phrase about the mercy seat, the chariot of the cherubim. And in uh, verse 19, he was to make it everything, even all the work of this pattern. And probably Solomon was thinking, dad, I've got it. I know what, you're, I know what I'm supposed to do. But there are some things that are important enough to be redundantly repeated. And then the Lord presented the, uh, the uh, tabernacle to us. And I'm going to try to share my screen here tonight. This, uh, we'll try if that works. Desi, it's not working, so I'm going to skip it. But anyhow, I had, a, I had worked on a, uh, a, a uh, drawing from the a Search for Truth chart of the tabernacle and uh, how it was set up. And I want you to notice one thing about the tabernacle that uh, occurred to me several years ago is that the Lord presented the tabernacle from the inside out. But when we start studying the tabernacle, almost always we start from the outside in because that's the way we approach God. God from the inside out is coming to us. From the outside in, we are going to God. And uh, first of all, God described how the ark of the covenant was to look and how it was to be built, beginning in Exodus 25 and 10. And then he worked out from there, describing various pieces of furniture and the utensils, and he finished up with the brass pins that were used in the court, the the curtains around uh, the whole tabernacle area in Exodus 27 and 19. The tabernacle was a place to meet the king. There was a specific protocol to come into his presence. Meeting with this king was serious business. The closed-off courtyard made a visit purposeful. People didn't just wander through the area and happen to drop in. There was one specific place on the east side that was designed for entry into the tabernacle courtyard, heading for the presence of the Lord. When someone entered, they first encountered the brazen altar where the sacrifice was offered. It was fire from this altar that was to be used to offer incense in the holy place. So when they made their sacrifice, they took some off some of the fire from the censer and put it in their censer, carried it in to the holy place where they were going to offer the uh, incense. But two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu were slain when they offered incense with strange fire or fire from somewhere else or some way else than the brazen altar or the way God had demanded, required that they do it. And that story is found in Leviticus chapter 10 in the first three verses. Next was the brazen labor where the priests were required to wash before entering the holy place in the tabernacle. This was so important that special instructions were given in Exodus chapter 30 and verses 20 and 21, warning of death for failing to wash. Inside the tabernacle proper, when you went into the tent, there was uh, bread to eat, there was light to see by and an altar dedicated to worship, with the exception of one man on one day of the year, this was as close to the king as somebody could come. Sacrifice, washing, seeing, eating, worshiping, and then that heavy veil divided the throne room if you will of the king from them and only once in the year one day in the year was one man allowed to be in the audience of the king and that was to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the whole nation he was their representative and much has been made of the parallels of the brazen furniture of the courtyard and the commands of Acts 2.38 to repent, which would be the brazen altar, be baptized, which would be the brazen labor. The analogies of the furniture in the holy place with the characteristics of Jesus as the bread of life and as the light of the world. And the golden altar was a place where incense could be offered as worship and as obeisance to the king. It was serious business come before the king. The modern mind has trouble grasping the absolute authority of the ancient kings. Modern monarchies are just a pale shadow of former regal power. The difference is brought to our attention in Ecclesiastes eight and verse four, where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, What doest thou? For example, when David commanded the slaying of the Amalekite, who claimed to actually have killed Saul in first, or Second Samuel one, or condemned the two men, Rechab and the Anna. Who killed Saul's son, King Ishbosheth, in 2 Samuel chapter 4. He appealed to no parliament. He checked with no Congress. He got the permission of no court. He just had them slain. Take them out. Or don't even take them out, kill them right here. This same power also manifested itself in David's treatment of Mephibosheth, Saul's crippled son, who was a perpetual guest at David's table. power is not always bad. Power can be used for good. But no bean counting bookkeeper would have dared to broach the subject of how much it cost to support Mephibosheth. And if however much it was, that didn't matter. The king had spoken. With these memories of monarchy, let's take another look at the tabernacle. The king of kings set up his court among the people. But still, there was a protocol, a required ritual to come into his presence. Only certain ones could get very near to him. Any who did come had to do so intentionally. And approaching required sacrifice, as in, as I mentioned before, repentance. Washing, as in baptism. Leaving the outer world behind by entering into the holy place and offering the incense of worship. In Hebrews nine, seven and eight, we find a further description of the restrictions and the reason for it. And I'm gonna here go to the New Living Translation. And if you've got questions, I'm getting close to through, so you could start uh, sending those in if you'd like. But I, from Hebrews 7, uh, nine verses seven and eight, but only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins of the people or the sins the people had committed in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed That the entrance to the most holy place, to the very presence of God, was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. So this, this tabernacle is not only a symbol of the presence of God, but it's also a symbol of the remoteness of God. Our king is not having a full audience this 1500 years. And while the king himself walked among us in flesh, he made some adjustments. You know, he can do that. He's the king. And where the word of a king is, there is power. None can dare to question his decree. At the time of the crucifixion, a sign was given of the change. And we find it in Mark 15, 38. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in from top to bottom. It's also told about in Matthew 27 51 and, and Luke 23 and 45. That, that was a, a tall and heavy curtain. It was, it was a minimum of uh, what, uh, 15 feet tall, even in the tabernacle. Nobody could reach up there and start at the top and tear it that way except someone who was already high and lifted up. And so the tabernacle curtain or the uh, temple curtain was uh, torn, rent in twain, and now the way is open. Now the king is holding court for all. We still need to approach in respect and reverence. He's still worthy of our awe. We should not become the, come before the ruler of the universe, dressed in an attitude of flip-flops and a muscle shirt or a tank top. We still bring a sacrifice of repentance and a cleansing of baptism in his name. How offensive would it be to approach a sovereign reeking of the BO of this world? But he's no longer hidden away behind an impenetrable curtain of laws and regulations. The doors open, the scepter of righteousness is extended. As we are instructed in Hebrews four and six, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help when we need it most. Oh, and as far as repetition goes, if if that's not enough, it's repeated in Hebrews 10 and 19. And so dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. I'm going to see the king. Let's go together. Let's go into his presence. God bless you. Does he? Have
0: we got questions? Yes, we do. So I'm (laughs) coming back. And in fact, one of the last questions that was submitted, you kind of hit it, but let's just go ahead and address it uh, directly, I should say. So one of the questions that came in asked, we see in the Old Testament that there were wrong ways to approach God as king. So in what ways is it possible for us to wrongly approach now? We no longer have a sacrificial system, but... Do you feel, and and you've already kind of hit on this, I just want you to make it real plain. Is it possible for us to still incorrectly approach God now?
1: Oh, yes, It, it would be very easy to do so if we come trying to approach him with our own way of doing things. God, you've got to do it this way. You've got to accept me this way because I'm coming this way which is what was the problem with Nadab and Abihu. God said, do it one way. They decided they wanted to do something else, which is the same basic problem that people have today when they uh, look at the word of God and they say, well, I don't don't have to do that. We do have to do what God said to do. (laughs) And it may not be as spectacular and dramatic and instantaneous as fire coming out, From the Holy of Holies and burning up Nadab and Abihu. But in the long run, it can be just as fatal. Not only temporally,
0: but eternally. Deciding that you can. You can do it your way. God, however you want. Gotcha. So let's flip this over another question. Let's do the opposite side of this coin. How can we ensure that we are approaching God in an appropriate way?
1: Well, one way would be to find out what he wants us to do and then do that. It, it comes down again to knowing what the Bible says. Jesus said, I do always the things which please him. Well, how do you know what pleases him? You've got to, you've, you've got to know what he likes. How do you know what somebody likes? You spend time with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife knows what I like to eat. Uh, and, and so those are things that uh, get prepared more often. If I know what God likes, how he likes me to be with him, what he wants, and he's given us an instruction book. I mean, yeah. has has books on how to get ready to meet the queen.
0: We've got a book that tells us how to get ready to meet the king. Yes. The Bible. Yes, absolutely. So can you give us at a high level, just quickly, for those who may be joining the broadcast and listening, what are some things we need to be conscious of when we approach this king? In other words, when we come before God.
1: Okay, we need to uh, be involved with with basically two things, I guess you could say, Mm -hmm. is our attitude and our actions. And I think that just about accomplishes uh, encompasses everything. Uh, we've got to do by action what he tells us to do. And a lot of times our actions are the result of our attitudes, such as repentance. Unless we realize our sinful state and our need of his touch of forgiveness in our lives, if we don't have the right attitude then we're just saying words. I have, uh, growing up, I, I heard many a time uh, when someone would be praying grace before the meal and, and the word would come out, forgive us of our many sins, but there was no change. There, mm-hmm. there was no, it, it didn't make any difference. It was just a rote, something to repeat. We need more than words. We need an attitude of, I want to do what God wants me to I want to be right with him. I want to be acceptable for him. I want an attitude that is acceptable. Yeah. Uh, we've we've all seen, uh, all parents of kids of any age at all, have, have seen them do what they were told to do, but we knew they weren't wanting to do it. I heard the story oh, yeah. of a little boy that was sent to the principal's office. And and uh, when he walked in, the, the principal told him, son, take a seat. And the little boy just stood there, and shook his head. And the principal said, I said, sit down. And he shook his head again, kept standing with the principal. This was a long time ago. So he went over, took him by the shoulders and put him in the seat. And the little boy said, I'm still standing up inside. Yeah. A lot of us are still standing up inside. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. We've got to we've got to keep a right attitude. God, I want what you want for my life. I, I want to be obedient to you, not just not just by the action, but I want my attitude to be right while I'm doing it. Mm
0: hmm. Absolutely. You mentioned this idea of rote, and it was interesting. Right about the time you said that, someone submitted a question that said, how do we ensure that when we approach God, it does not become rote? Keep
1: your experience with God fresh.
0: So what does that mean?
1: That, that means... Study your Bible. I could use a famous phrase, it's at least famous around here do a slow reading. <laughs> oh,
0: I've heard that a couple of times before. Wow.
1: Yeah, I like that idea. Do a yes. slow reading. Yeah. Interesting what things you will uncover at a walking pace that you might miss at 60 miles an hour.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and and then take, a, take all opportunities. And this is especially important in. The days that we are in now, literally, that we take every opportunity to get close to God, to listen to him, to talk to him, to be sensitive to his leading.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: we, we can get so busy day to day, wrapped up in, in the moment, that we forget that we are the children of the King, and He has a job for us that transcends anything else that we might be doing to make money or to uh, anything else, Uh, and so we need to stay sensitive. We need to take advantage of everything we can to learn more about Him, to as much as we can gather with the people of God. You say, well, the church is closed. No, the church is not closed. The church is deployed.
0: Yeah, We're the building's active. closed right now,
1: but not the church. The, the building's closed, but not the church. The church is still as alive and is, as active as it's. In fact, this part of the church is more active than it's been.
0: Yes, we, it is, if you're being we, at-
1: <laughs> We've been in revival for six months and only taking one rest night a week. We've been having services for six nights a week, on and on and on for months. That would be a major revival if we were meeting in person. Yeah. Uh, And and so what we're looking at is we have an opportunity here to get together. Uh, Someone talked to me recently, very, very recently, and talked about that there was was just a difference when – she could be looking at the evening services at the time when they were first being broadcast it was just different to be mm-hmm. getting them then when she knew all the rest of the church was assembled yeah it was different than it was if if she happened to catch it later mm-hmm. and that's, that's the thing. We have an opportunity to be together. Now, I don't see you and you don't see me except for things like this with the Zoom. Right. And, Th- through a screen. But, through a screen, but God sees us all together and together we can worship him. Together yes. we can learn of him. Together we may be physically separated, but we're not all sitting on the same pew at church. And I'll guarantee you that there are times when you go to the church house and you go through a whole service and there are some people that you never see for weeks on end and you're both in the same service. This is just a different type of of not seeing them. Yeah, we've got technology now that that the the apostles, the early church would have just drooled to have so that they could get together in in more ways, more times. Yeah. If we're gonna have a a pandemic, this is the day to have it because we've got technology that takes us way above and beyond what anything that a previous generation has had. And I'm I'm looking at at this thing that when we go back together, we're gonna be some of the biggest fools on God's green earth if we don't continue something of a digital campus, there are possibilities here that are yes, way beyond are. anything we can imagine. We've not, we've just scratched the surface with this. Yeah, absolutely. And that's an old man talking. <laughs> but you see it, and I appreciate it. I see it. I don't understand it, but I see it. Yes, sir. I couldn't even get my share screen up tonight, but I see this. In fact, many years ago when I when I had a problem with my uh, detached retina and I went blind in that right eye, it, it occurred to me during that time, if I lose my sight, I do not want to lose my vision.
0: Mm. Yes, sir. So God help us to keep a right perspective. Uh-huh. And tying to what you were talking to about how we approach God A lot of it from what you've described has to do with our own thoughts and the attitude in which we come to him. So I'm going to swing back around. I tried to lump some questions together that were of a similar nature. Let me swing back around to the first question that was submitted tonight. And we had someone uh, ask a question about you mentioned in the Old Testament, these sacrifices and how once a year the high priest could come in and make this sacrifice in the holiest of holies, in essence, before the king. And you mentioned it just briefly, but if you could go back and elaborate just a little bit more. What what was going on with that sacrifice? What, what was this high priest doing once a year when they were allowed to come directly into the Holy of Holies and offer this sacrifice? Oh, my. That was
1: Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Mm-hmm. We talk about it as... Uh, we've even mentioned it tonight, but I was very careful in how I tried to present it uh, in my message here this evening. We get the idea that one time, one time in one day of the year, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. It's not right. It was one day. It was one day. It was one day. But on that day, There was a high priest who went to bed very, very tired that night because he had been busy, busy, busy. He was in and out of that uh, holy of holies, making multiple sacrifices. He had to make a sacrifice, first of all, for himself. He had to make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. He had to to change clothes in, in the midst of all of his... Uh, ritual there uh, before the Lord, and the thing was that he was going in there with the blood of the sacrifice
0: mm-hmm. and
1: sprinkling it on the mercy seat.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or the, this there were there were sacrifices every day, at least twice a day. Oh, we so, see that
0: the morning and the evening. The morning
1: and the evening sacrifice at least
0: twice many times in the scriptures.
1: Yeah and on this day of atonement on yom kippur that was a special day people would set aside the day it would become a sabbath for them Mm -hmm. and they would concentrate on prayer on worship that day Uh, the high priest would have special ceremonies there were special offerings there were there were two goats how much time have i got here We've got about five minutes. Okay. Uh, but on, on a that... A little bit more detail. Yeah. yeah. He, he offered a lamb, but there were two goats. And this is a whole this is a whole study in itself. But they would bring two goats before the high priest. And he would draw lots, uh, pieces of clay or some such that had two names on them. One of them was the name of the Lord, Yahweh, that tetragrammaton. And on the other one was the word Azazel, from which we get the term scapegoat.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he would uh, choose one of the goats, and then he would reach into the into the pot and pull out the lot, and uh, that this one will be Yahweh, and this one will be for azaleel. And then the the goat that had the name of the Lord was the one that was sacrificed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and the blood of that goat was put on the mercy seat to atone for the sins for the forgiveness the covering of the yeah. sins of the nation of israel the uh, before he sacrificed the goat he named upon it he put his hands on his head and named over it all the sins of israel then the other goat was taken by another priest out into the wilderness and let go. It was the scapegoat. Some folks say, well, it had all of the uh, all of the sins. No, the sins were taken care of there at the altar. but I, I remember a day that there stood two men before the high priest. It was Passover time, but there was still an atonement going on. And there was uh, one of them who had the name of the Lord. And there was another one who was a rascal. And the one who had the name of the Lord, the high priest, set his seal upon him as this is the one that must die. And they let Judas go. And the the one, the, the one who carried the name of the Lord was sacrificed for us.
0: Barabbas, they let Barabbas go. Yeah,
1: Barabbas, not Judas. Barabbas, yes. they let Barabbas go. And and uh, and uh, Jesus was sacrificed. Sorry, Uh,
0: I'm an old man. It's okay. No, I I was following with you. That's. I don't know that I've ever made that comparison before, but I see what you're saying. That's another great example of how one of them carried God's name, and that that is the man who paid the sacrifice, who paid the price, not the rascal, as you put it. Uh huh. So thank you for that quick brief overview of what, so you can see to our church family, let me see, you can see all this going on and notice all of this has to do with forgiveness and mercy and, and just making themselves right with God. And as we come to the top of the hour, it's not even fair to do this, but I'm going to throw another question at you. Hopefully you can answer it in just a couple minutes, but tying to that. So we see this as this ritual, the ceremony that happens on one day of the year, not, not one time on that day, but throughout the day, there's multiple sacrifices that right. are made annually on one day a year and then we see how as you just beautifully illustrated between jesus and barabbas these two men and one was offered as a sacrifice paid that final cost for sacrifice and the system changed you go back and read in your new testament how the veil in the temple was actually torn in half symbolically representing how that separation between god and man was ripped apart but now going forward How has this King of Kings adjusted his protocol so that we can be in his presence since the resurrection and the gift and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit? So we spent a lot of time talking tonight about what these protocol to come before the King of Kings look like in the Old Testament. So just in summary, as we get ready to close out the broadcast tonight, post Calvary and resurrection, how has this same King of Kings adjusted his protocol?
1: There's still a brazen altar for sacrifice of our repentance.
0: So he still requires repentance. We, we, we
1: sacrifice our old life. We offer it up on an altar of judgment to him.
0: Yeah. Then
1: we wash at the labor of Jesus' name baptism for the remission of the washing away of our sins to cleanse us of all the residue of all of that stuff then we can go into the holy place and there he is our light and he is our bread and we can worship him and we can be in his presence because now the veil is split and he cannot we can not only be in his presence but thank god we've got the ability to receive the baptism of the holy ghost so that we become the Holy of Holies and the King is residing
0: in us. God comes to dwell in us. We become the tabernacle. And it's not an annual one-day experience.
1: Mm -mm. Shortly after I received the Holy Ghost in a revival, and the next Sunday when I was back in church, one of the men in the church just as as fellas will do, he said, "You still got the Holy Ghost?" Well, I hadn't had the Holy Ghost long enough to know whether I did or not. <laughs> but I found out pretty soon. Yeah, when when I got it, I got it. You got it. It's mine.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: And and if I can say one more thing. Yes. Some, sometimes we we concentrate on Nadab and Abihu. We concentrate on Uza, who. Touch the ark as they were bringing They it. were transporting
0: it from yeah. Philistine back into the land of Israel. And
1: he touched the ark and died. And we concentrate on those things. But every year there was mercy. Yes. Here's three guys that died. And every year a nation found mercy. We sometimes, we mountain. I get climb. that
0: backwards, don't we? We mountain climb over bowl hills. Mm-hmm. And something to think about as we come to a close tonight. Remember that we, we talked about this in the character of God and what we saw in our series. If you watched it on the, the book of the 12, sometimes referred to as the minor prophets, this theme that showed up over and over. This God who is slow to get angry and very rich in mercy. And that same God, that king of kings invites us into his presence. And he gives us the gift of his spirit that allows him to dwell within us. We live in an incredibly blessed age. I'm so glad that I am alive today and not under that Old Testament mosaic law system. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Newark family. We're so glad to have you here on this broadcast. If you're a guest, we welcome you. We broadcast nightly every night of the week except Monday nights, So six nights a week, Tuesday through Saturday at 7 p.m., you can find all kinds of information about what we're doing. You can submit prayer requests. You can submit baptism requests. You can submit a chance to connect with one of our online small groups, to connect with other people, find our Bible study lessons, our media page, which has six months worth of sermon archives that we've been doing through this whole COVID-19 period. All of that can be found on our website at newarkupc.info. And we welcome you to go check us out there. We thank you for joining us. And to our Newark family, just a reminder, next week we're going to be doing a conference theme. And so you will be receiving an email this Friday with more instructions about that. Our broadcasts are going to look a little different for this upcoming week, Saturday, Sunday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of next week. But you don't want to miss it. They're going to be a little bit longer in length, but they're going to be extra special. And we pray and hope that all of you will find it as encouraging as we do. Thank you so much for joining us. God bless you, church family. And everyone have a good evening.